this situation is traumatic at, at the worst for people and stressful at the least. So every single person is dealing with uh, just a change of circumstances, um, sort of this great unknown. My name is Rob Van Nood, and you're listening to the second season of Elevate, a podcast about big ideas, little projects, and everything in between. Educators and students share their short, elevator pitch size stories to raise your awareness of everything that is going on here at Catlin Gable School. We hear over and over how challenging our current situation is. With work and school disrupted, and all of us feeling isolated in one way or another, issues of mental and emotional health are on everybody's minds. In this week's two-part episode, I bring together staff and faculty who play a central role in providing support for kids and families at Catlin Gable. In part one, I speak with Jasmine Love, George Zaninovich, John Harnito, and Lindsay Babbitt about trauma, the support they are offering students and families, and what silver linings could come from all of this. In part two, the school's counseling team, made up of Stephen Grant, Kristen Ogard, Kate Grant, and Casey Mills, share how they are helping students and families in need, and they offer suggestions and tips that we can all take to heart. Well, I'd like to welcome a really fine group of Catlin um, faculty to the podcast today. Uh, I invited Jasmine, John, Lindsay, and George to come in and have a, an opportunity to talk about ways to um, get support and have support and, and how, how we can think about during this time, this really bizarre time for all of us, how we can support each other and how we can support teachers um, with all the different resources that this, this group of people have. Um, so I wanted to just put it out there to see who would like to uh, just jump in and, and start talking about some of the things you've done already or that you've um, been trying to do during this, um, the last, you know, six weeks. Well, I'll start. Uh, one way that we've been trying to support people in the inclusion office is by creating a newsletter that raises some questions that we haven't seen raised at the school and some of the more uncomfortable questions about inequities and how people are being affected by this pandemic differently. And so I think sometimes part of support is having somebody else raise a question that you've been sitting on that you haven't seen addressed. Could you talk about some of those questions that sure. or some of the conversations that you're having? Sure. One of the things we've been talking about are just all kinds of things having to do with people being at home alone or being a part of groups that are being affected more intensely by the pandemic, by folks who don't have the financial resources to keep up with some of the demands of the digital age that we have found ourselves forced in. Um, people, students who are in a situation, well, I'll say students and adults who are in a family situation where home isn't necessarily safe or comfortable and now forced to be in a situation where they are really at uh, psychological survival level, hopefully nobody at a survival level, but we don't know, you know, that all of this just increases whatever family dynamics have been difficult anyway. And for people who find work and school a refuge, this has just can be a really hellish time. So trying to figure out how do we bring those issues to the forefront 
without having them squashed because people are really focused on, you know, how can we be grateful at this time and production and how do we keep moving forward? And you can leave some folks behind in that. And in those conversations, you know, the, we've been talking about how this situation is traumatic at, at the worst for people and stressful at the least. So every single person is dealing with uh, just a change of circumstances, um, sort of this great unknown. And with in the inclusion office and with this newsletter, we've been wanting to sort of highlight maybe the stories that, as Jasmine was saying, could be out there, but we don't necessarily know. Like We don't necessarily have the mechanisms to know um, what everybody is dealing with and what is being triggered or activated by what's going on here. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about this and I teach the dialogue for democracy class with crystal and how this works with students too. And, and we just don't know how this is activating our students. And so, um, Lindsay and I did um, the Exchange for Change program last year, and we sort of brought some trauma-informed practices of just really creating space for students to be able to gain some trust with each other and listen to each other and, and tell us what's going on for them. And um, we've been trying to do that in our class this year as well. And I, I think that in a time like this, when there is so much unknown, having built-in mechanisms for students to be able to share how this is impacting them on a real emotional uh, visceral level has been has been good, but we still don't know what we don't know, I think. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be uh, from the conversations that I've been having, uh, at least recently, it really feels like we've entered into this period of time right now. You know, today is the 28th, I think, of, of April. Um, is that correct? People are looking around. It is the twenty eighth. It is the twenty eighth of April. I, I got the right date. Um, I know it's April. That's <laughs> some, somewhere in April. Saturday, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and it really feels like the first few weeks were okay. We're going to do this. We're going to figure this out. You know, we've we're going to figure out the kind of mechanical pieces of the uh, the process of being in school or being at work. Um, and that unknown that people are feeling more and more um, seems to be pretty much across the board. Everyone I've talked to has that sense of that, like George, you were saying, kind of the unknown, like where we don't know what we don't know. Um, and that puts people in a kind of a different place than I think most have, for the most part, have ever been in, especially collectively. Um, do you have, do any of you guys have ideas or um, thoughts about ways to work with that kind of unknown? I mean, what are, what are some things people could be doing to center themselves in a place that like, how do you, how do you deal with these kind of traumatic things that are, we don't know when they, well, they'll, they'll stop. I, one of the things that I've been thinking about is, um, sort of that that tension between being optimistic but also being very realistic in all of this um and and one of the things that i've been doing with my advisees when i talk with them is to certainly not try to give any sort of false sense of uh confidence or certainty about what's going to happen and then to be really honest if they ask me questions about you know when are we coming back to school and what's going to happen in the fall um being really honest and saying i don't know um yet i think also relying on uh, history in the sense that there are 
history suggests that pandemics do end. Um, and so while we have a certain road of uncertainty that we need to travel for an undisclosed amount of time, um, we do also, uh, we also can hold on to the belief that this pandemic will end. We just don't know when. Um, and so that's one of the things that I have been trying to just gently remind my students is that like there, there will be an end to this um, and there's going to be waves of uncertainty that come after that um, because this is fundamentally changing a lot of our lives. Um, yet I, I think that, that we can rely on this idea that um, it will end and things will look really different then. I think something I want to highlight, Rob, back to your question is, um, and, and we all know this, um, and, you know, trauma-informed practices, culturally responsive teaching, equity-based approaches, resiliency thinking, all of this, um, it, it gets at this point that we know that this pandemic, this situation is impacting the most vulnerable populations in a different way and, and more potentially. Um, and my question for us is like, what are we doing thinking about our, our own community and, and even identifying the most vulnerable people in our community? So um, to me, the equity-based approach is to figure out the, how to give them the most support. Um, you know, it's not equality. It's not everyone gets the same thing. And so I think we're still in a discovery phase a little bit of who is needing what and how do we understand what people need, especially those that are maybe dealing with greater impacts. Um, of this crisis. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking about what the mechanisms are that the school has to, to offer that support. You know, it's not like we can all drive out to people's houses and, and be there physically with them. Or even, you know, like I think about in the IT office, um, you know, we're trying to make uh, kind of the tools that students need and teachers need accessible by you know, we'll send them out um, that I think that's a, an initial start, but uh, I think those greater needs in terms of the financial needs and um, the, you know, just the supports in, in families like Jasmine, you were talking about some, some students don't feel necessarily safe at home. Um, I do know one thing that we want to try in the inclusion office is we have an inclusion meeting scheduled for next week. And I want to turn it into like an inclusion, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to turn it into an inclusion CNC, like a conversations and connection drop in time to talk about anything people might have seen around equity based inclusion issues that we might not know about. Because it's so hard in these Zoom calls and these places where people present themselves to see what's going on with people. And when you're in the school, you can just walk by somebody and see hmm, that person doesn't look right or check in with somebody and it's really hard to do in this digital format yeah. so hopefully people you know if people have noticed something even just tangentially we might hear about it and I wanted to say also on the flip side for some people um, school is also stressful and they may be feeling a huge sense of relief and um, these types of meetings might be really 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 stressful so they might be suddenly figuring out hey this is a much better way to go to school so for the people that are teaching that are in, in classes, what kind of conversations are you noticing that the students are having that have maybe shifted in the last six weeks? Are you noticing kids feeling more comfortable or less comfortable? I think people do kind of have Zoom fatigue in some ways. This is kind of a forced way to get together. But I'm just curious about those, those conversations students are having. How many of you guys are teaching 
Yeah, that was one thing I was thinking George. about, that a lot of the people who are set in place to support students aren't in the classroom. And so um, I've been a part of a couple of affinity groups. And one thing I'm noticing students talking a lot about boredom, which is a little bit of a cover emotion anyway, but yeah. just, just real true frustrating boredom. But I just don't see students as much as I wish I did. And there's right now no opportunity for them to just drop by or come in. Yeah, I would echo what Jasmine's saying. I have so many interactions with students every day, and right now I feel like I barely see them. I have CNC once a week. We met for Feminism Club one time, and I've dropped in on a couple of other clubs or classes, but I find it really hard to get a sense of how students are feeling right now. And I mean, I read the um, anecdotes that are sent by Aline and Ted, and I, I hear from other faculty, but um, and thinking about how to support students, it's hard because I don't feel like I have a good pulse on how students are doing. And I think like everyone's saying, there's such a wide range of whether this time is feeling like stressful or restorative or traumatic or a mix of all of those. Um, we're, we're offering for the first time this week some outdoor education programming tomorrow for the middle school. But um, it's, yeah, I, I don't know if that feels exciting for people or if it feels like one more Zoom call that they're not interested in. Um, and I've been hesitant to offer anything up until this point because I don't want to overload everyone, all the students, while they're sort of acclimating to this new reality. So, um, yeah, I think it's, I think we're still, even though we've been doing this for over a month now, we're still kind of figuring it out. And I would love to figure out more ways to connect with students on a daily basis. Yeah, one of the things when I was talking to Sharon Ravitch was something that I thought was really important insight um, I had asked her, you know, ways that we as educators or, or parents should be thinking about this experience. And she said, I think everyone that are educators should put themselves into the, the frame of mind that this is their first year teaching. And I thought that was really helpful that just in terms of the educators to be like, oh, yeah, remember what it was like to be a brand new teacher. And we're all kind of in this. And on the flip side, students are all almost like brand new students in some ways. But their experience as, as young people is much more difficult than we as adults. We're kind of, for the most part, you know, we have our traumas and stresses around this situation, but we're still kind of doing our jobs. And, you know, maybe we don't see our friends normally as much as we would like to, but um, that this experience for students is much, much bigger in terms of the, the unknown. So part of what, what I've been thinking about is, what John said, you know, pandemics will end and, you know, we will, we'll find, you know, collectively a way through this and, and past this. So part of, I feel like our job is also to use this as an opportunity to think about how things should be in the future. And part of the conversation, again, I keep flipping back to talking with Sharon um, because I, I thought she was very insightful. Um, we were talking about the whole idea of new normal and that, uh, you know, people are like, when are we going to have the new normal or get back to normal? And, and part of our conversation was really, we need to stop saying that. We need to stop saying normal because normal is a very, um, very, it's kind of a cultural word that speaks to pretty much the normal for white men to some degree. And that new norm and, and then kind of the normal of society has been the thing that keeps driving us to these places of inequity, kind of bringing us over the cliff. 
really thinking about this as an opportunity to maybe pause and really think, well, what are the, the pieces when we go back to school that really can be different and that should be different? I don't have an answer, but that's something I've been thinking about. I don't know if the rest of you have been thinking kind of long-term about what are the, what are the lessons that we are learning that we need to be doing differently at Catlin? One of the, the things that I have been thinking about is just the number of conversations that were happening pre-COVID about the, the observations of our, just our, our student body's level of, of mental health and, and how it was at pretty discouraging levels. And I keep thinking about just, you know, Catlin being sort of this giant aircraft carrier. You can hear my kids crying in the background. <laughs> this is just the reality. Um, uh, and um, I've just been thinking about how hard it is to, you know, to redesign something like a schedule or to reprioritize things. And so in some ways, like right now, I, I wonder about what sort of structural options we have to us um, as far as how we might shift priorities when we come back. You know, and I know that there was a scheduling committee that that uh, that I think Lindsay was on for a while too. Um, yeah. That that was trying to do all this work, and and it was really hard. And and I'm I wonder if that work is now a little bit easier um, since things have been so drastically uprooted. Uh, so you know, that's one of the things that I think about is not only just how do we uh, change our interpersonal interactions, but also like how do we change these structures? Because right now we have potentially a, a time that we, that we could we can do that uh so so that, that i mean that, that's like you i don't i don't think there are like sil silver bullets available but I, I i'm drawn to what kind of structural interventions we have at this point that would have been harder to do um in our pre-covid existence i'm hoping that this time does a little bit to disintegrate the more is better idea and that we can sort of distill down and focus on what we as a school feel is the best um, are the best priorities for the students what the students feel are priorities for them um, and I know that's something we've been talking about yeah I was on the time design team for a little while and um, I feel like in a lot of conversations in both the upper and middle school folks talk about how we're just adding more and more and more and so um, yeah, never felt like there was a time to like pause or shift. And, and now we've been given one whether we wanted it or not. And so I hope that, um, yeah, we, I think, I hope that we're all reflecting. I think people are doing a lot of reflecting right now um, on how we can um, come back and maybe shift things to have more of an equity focus in general um, at school and how we can prioritize what matters more to students um, and not just thinking that more is better. <laughs> One of the things that I'm thinking about along those lines, Lindsay, is um, how we can use this time to realize that, you know, all trauma is not equal, obviously, and all of our experiences are not equal. So how can we change our classroom so we're not expecting everybody to do the same things? Um, and how can we give students more choice um, within the curriculum um, to empower them to bring what they're interested in to the table um, and really be strengths-based in our approach um, as a way to let students feel like there's a little bit of control. Um, I think that right now we're realizing we're all a little bit out of control and we're grasping for control in different ways. And that's what anxiety and all of this stuff does to us in general. 
And we're all bringing that every day to Catlin Gable in different ways. It's showing up in different ways. It, it fundamentally informs how we go through the day. And so how can we in our classes give students the opportunity to bring their personal experience and what's relevant to them um, to the fore? That's an essential question I have for how we might change some stuff up. I think this time has really highlighted for me, and I think for everybody else, what we said before, how many people are not in the classrooms and connecting to students right now. And so if all of our supports, well, not all of our supports, because I don't want to say that teachers aren't supporting the heart, but if some of the folks who are designed to be people who support the hearts of students are outside the classroom, and this really shows you have your outdoor ed people, you have the center, you have the inclusion office all outside of the classroom and not accessible, at least right now, in the way we've prioritized how to set this up. I think that's something that should carry over, that we look at how these are seen as maybe extraneous services, and that really is not the way they should be. It should be right in the center of what students are doing. Do you have any thoughts about that, Jasmine? I think that's a really compelling idea. And um, just in terms of structurally, like how, how would you imagine um, your department being more centrally available or part of classes rather than this, you know, I'm over in this room, come and talk to me if you want, but you don't have right. to. I think moving into the classroom in a way that is normalized. So it's not just a, oh, we have DEI work today in the classroom or diversity work, we have to do this. It's a little bit like, so it's not such an eye-rolling thing that they become substantive conversations that students want to have and don't feel that it's only there for certain students. And that's a little bit of the narrative right now that the inclusion office is there for students of color or students of uh, socioeconomically challenged students or queer students not for all students, so that modules moving into different classrooms that are valued and that students are engaged in. Yeah, and back to your point, Lindsay, about, um, you know, less could be more and looking at that now, if all of these things that we're considering co-curricular or extra, you know, it's just another thing for students to do because it's on top of the schedule. If the place program, if outdoor ed, if center, if DEI, if robotics, all of these things were more, like Jasmine said, modulated and being part of the school day, then it also takes some of the pressure um, off the time that students are, are spending doing these things. Because what we found is that students need this stuff and want this stuff, um, but it's extra. So it's another thing on top of it. I have been thinking a lot about how the work that we, the four of us are all doing with students is so supportive to just student growth and development and how those skills are skills that they're drawing on in class every day. Um, we were talking about in a middle school faculty meeting a few weeks ago, some teachers were sharing that um, they're not seeing students uh, problem solve as readily as they normally would when they're around their peers or work as independently. And I think that those are skills that we're all like on an outdoor ed trip or on exchange for change or in place programming. Um, that's the skills that students are working on. And um, I just, I think it's interesting that right now when we're in this different environment, students are um, having a harder time accessing those skills. And so it's making me think a lot about how we can work more directly with what's going on in the classroom and, um, and support, you know, programs and classroom can support each other more in terms of like partnering to help students develop those skills. Yeah, and I, I think one of the kind of 
related to that, one of the things I've been thinking about is what, um, if we're talking about potential solutions here, is um, is what what maybe um, discrediting we've done by calling these things programs, because um, I think that you know that that leads them to be viewed as a, you know, kind of what Jasmine said is extraneous is like, Oh, it's a program you can opt in or opt out of. Um, you know, and I, and I worry about that moving forward when we're talking about things like building a wellness program um, that I think in some ways, when we programmatize something, we start to lose the end goal of, of what, of what we're trying to do. Um, and so I, you know, I wonder about what, what does this time offer as far as getting away from kind of the, um, the, the program mania that, that we have at Catlin sometimes and how to, how to simplify um, and, and maybe re-examine what our end goal is and whether or not um, our programs are vehicles to that or how they can be better vehicles to that. Maybe as kind of a, a final conversation piece or, or idea, one of the things that I've been thinking about in terms of you know, coming back and the way the structures of Catlin are is that there's there's so much conversation and talk all the time about uh, relationship, and and relationships are a key central part of Catlin. And by stepping back a little bit, I've, I've been really thinking that in some way those relationships are always go back to kids talking about their relationships with teachers, and this kind of one-on-one support with teachers, and. I started thinking like even in our, our literature and, and, you know, the, the things that are pushed out, it's like these videos of kids sitting there with a teacher or uh, one-on-one, you know, that one-on-one experience. And I've been wondering if one of the shifts that maybe we need to be thinking about is could we shift the, what, what that means to have, have relationship at Catlin that isn't so centralized necessarily on the teacher being kind of the central person to help move the, things along, if that makes sense. I think about what happens like at a quarantine time like this, that many students um, and, and much of the learning that has been happening or that it feels like it's been happening has been a result of, well, the teacher's got to get ready. I've got to connect and do the Zoom and the teachers are running everything. And you, because we don't have that one-on-one relationship, the, the learning in some ways kind of falls apart and feels a little flat because you see that teacher on Zoom maybe for 30 minutes a couple times a week, and then you're kind of off doing your own thing. And my, my understanding from students is they're kind of bored. They don't feel excited to be coming into the classes necessarily. And I really wondered if, if instead of being so like teacher focused in terms of the relationship, it was more like the culture was around community and kids were more reliant on each other and teachers were part of that. And, you know, pictures or videos were like a group of people together and the teacher was part of that togetherness and kids, you know, 10 years from now are like, not just like, I really remember this great experience in George's class um, because George was so great or Crystal was so great, but really I remember all these kids and we did this big thing together and George and Crystal were part of it. But that, so that's, that's not really a question. It's a thought that's been coming up in terms of shifting what it feels like to be in a community at Catlin that is more inclusive. And I think that that speaks to the things you guys were talking about is that, you know, if you want to have this relationship with the outdoor program, you have to kind of go out there and then it's like, Oh, I'm with John and Lindsay rather than they're part of this bigger thing. I, I love that. 
I do. I love that. I think that it speaks to that big conversation about collectivism versus individualism and how different cultures have different focus. And I think that's also why we're seeing such a different way that the United States is approaching this pandemic. It's all about the individual and the individual's relationship with that teacher and the individual's relationship with that subject matter and that whatever they're doing, it's the individual. Even in our inclusion work, we have the individuals who are involved in the inclusion work. So shifting that to a community or a collective vision about how to build community, then every student then has a responsibility to be a part of that larger community. And we talk about what that actually looks like. That would be a great shift. That would be a great result of all of this. Yeah, what you're sharing, Rob, um, feels a lot like I think what we're already doing in a lot of our um, programs as they're currently called. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think uh, thinking back on last summer when uh, George, Crystal and I um, ran the Exchange for Change program through the PLACE program and in partnership with College Dreams in Southern Oregon, um, we had 24 students and I feel like the focus was on the students focus was on each other and i think that's my goal for any sort of outdoor ed trip or any programming i'm i always see myself more as a facilitator um than a teacher i would say and i'm here to facilitate the suit the experience for the students and i'm hoping that they're i'm supporting them to take the lead um and taking it where they want to go um but yeah thinking about those images that you're talking about like that's any any sort of outdoor education trip. We're sitting in a circle, we're doing a debrief, we're reflecting, we're supporting each other. And, um, you know, we don't, we don't do a lot of, I mean, yeah, I guess we do, we do share content, but that's not really the focus. One tool that we've been using to create that sort of collective community in the, in the classroom, in our programs are restorative talking circles. And they're not the type of thing that you just do when there's something going wrong. You do them regularly. Um, so you can share the good times, the bad times, the hard times and problem solve. And what's great about that is that it's something that teachers uh, or you know, program directors can model, but then students can lead. And it, it really become, it creates a, a, some co-ownership within the group. And hopefully this doesn't speak to like, uh, how bad of a, a teacher I am in terms of content, but a lot of the feedback that we've gotten, Crystal and I, in our in our uh, Dialogue for Democracy class and other things have been that the circle time has been about the best part of the classes because it allows students to, like you said, interact collectively about like what's going on in their lives and like what's good and what's bad. And and then it is a tool for problem solving when, when we need it. But students really seem to like having that five to eight minutes in every single class where they get to check in with each other um, and check in with like their hearts and their minds. And it's not just doing and accomplishing. Um, and that, that pause, I think we need to pause and create time if we are gonna collectively move forward. We need to intentionally be collective. John, did you want to say something? You were starting to say something and you were muted. <laughs> Classic. Uh, um, well, the, I feel like the moment's passed a little bit, but I think what, what Lindsay had said about um, sort of the, the goal of outdoor education or some of the, the classic models and structures of outdoor education, I, I think that just as, a, as an individual, I've been relying on those more um, to get through this like on my own, like my professional networks outside of Catlin have been more um, 
comforting and, and therapeutic, uh, primarily because like that's just the way of being in those cultures and organizations. And I and I, I think it's also shed light on on what I'm feel like I'm missing sometimes uh, more collectively at Catlin. Um, so I, that was just one of the reflections that I've had around the adult community and and what um, and what what is helpful for certain individuals at that time. And and that would be an example of my own. But. Well, thank you all for taking a little bit of time. I know that we could talk about a lot of this in, in much more depth, and I, and hopefully these, you know, this conversation continues on in other people's minds and you know, kind of the collective direction that we want to go. Um, I really appreciate uh, all your voices in here. And thanks so much. Thank you. You guys are great. And uh, keep at it. <laughs> it's always feels, the Zoom sessions always feel a little weird. It's kind of like, yeah. see This you one again. has felt better than most. <laughs> keep an eye. Yeah. See you again when we see you sometime. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for bringing us all together, Rob. Yeah, of thank course, you, Rob. Of course. Yeah, we, I appreciate Elevate in general. I, I love what you're doing in our community. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Good. me too. At Catlin Gable, we are really fortunate to have a team of highly trained and dedicated mental health professionals. I thought it was essential that I could get them all together on one Zoom call to hear their take on the current crisis and what suggestions they would have to offer all of us. Well, hello, everybody. Um, I'm really uh, happy to invite or have invited uh, four um, esteemed colleagues from the counseling office. So Kristen Ogard, who's a middle school counselor, Stephen Grant, who's the lower school and beginning school counselor, and Casey Mills and Kate Grant, who work with all the students in the upper school. And today we're going to be talking about stories of experiences by the counselors and um, what they're seeing from from their homes and the work that they've been doing. So today I wanted to start off by asking everybody to share a little bit about the work that you're doing. What is it like to be a counselor having to work with students and parents uh, from home? Kristen, do you want to start off? Yeah, hello everyone. Um, during this time of COVID, it's been pretty rough from the counseling perspective in my, in my mind. Um, a lot of our work is feeling-based, empathy-based, and that's harder when it's done on a Zoom or you have that camera in between you and the other person. And it takes a little more effort of trying to look for eye contact and really getting in touch with that student you're trying to work with. Um, I have been doing Zoom sessions with some of the students. Other students prefer to email with me. And I would say that in general, what I've been seeing is um, some of the kids who already had anxiety issues or some depression issues, those seem to have been exacerbated right now. And it kind of looks like um, distraction in classes, getting behind, um, meltdowns at home, when they're not in class. So I've been doing some behind the scenes work with parents to coach them with parenting tips to get through that. And then of course the Zoom sessions and emailing with students. Um, if I had my druthers, I'd rather be back at work face to face with everybody. Anybody else wanna jump in and share 
Yeah, sure. I, uh, you know, my, my name is Casey. I'm from the Ever School. I, what I've noticed is um, uh, similar to Kristen with a little bit of the exacerbation of depression or just a depressed mood because I don't, you know, I don't want to diagnose everybody, but the depressed mood or the anxious feelings come up quite a bit. Um, another thing that has come up is, which I, I think would be kind of clear to everybody is the feelings of isolation um, and disconnection while trying to stay connected. Um, parents have emailed, I know they, they've emailed both me and Kate, um, you know, what do we do about the isolation or the lack of motivation my son or daughter is feeling? Um, so those things have come up uh, as well and from parents and from, from some students. Uh, and like Kristen, uh, you know, I've offered and, and have held some Zoom sessions one-on-one -on -one with students. Sometimes there's two, three, or four students that I'm talking with um, in, in a Zoom session. And it, it still goes back to just um, listening to what they need and trying to figure out ways to help support them on an individual basis, um, on a family basis, but also kind of within peer groups as well. I guess I'll just add a little bit. Um, to the upper school experience, which is I think that students in each of our levels really depend on social contact. And so I think that they really missed having some of that. And I just wanna commend lots of groups at Catlin for continuing to meet with um, their students. Casey and I both teach a health class. So we see a group of students every week um, in the 10th grade, but I know that Sue has, um, Phillips in the library has sponsored opportunities for students to get together by class. One time she had them bring their pets. We're trying to do a lot to kind of give them some of that social um, connection back. But I wanna caution us from thinking that every student is having a horrible time because there's some kids who feel a little relief not, um, not being, at school every day, I mean, or not being really there. Um, and so I think, you know, you'll have to see from your own children or the people in your class that every student will, just as you all, experience this in his or her own way and kind of let that be the way they experience it. Um. So my name is I'm Stephen Grant. I'm the beginning and lower school counselor. Um, as always, when we get together as counselors, um, we're always having a conversation about how um, different the needs um, and approaches to supporting students are um, across stages of development. So um, it, from, from beginning to the lower school and then the lower school to the middle school and the middle school to the upper school there it's a huge range but there's also just for me beginning to to you know preschool through five there's a huge range of need there as well um so i'll say a little bit about how i've been interfacing um with the community during this time with students i've been meeting i can have continued to meet with some students one-on-one -on -one. um Although even that looks a little bit different. It used to be we, the, our work would be focused on emotion regulation and managing behavior at school. Um, whereas now it's a little bit more focused on how they're 
using those skills um, at home to navigate COVID-19. And it's, it's just a little trickier because it, you know, there's not that in context practice of those skills day, day by day, but I'm still doing some of that. Um, I'm grades one through five. I'm meeting with classes um, either once a week or every other week doing some mindfulness and stress reduction lessons, um, which has really been a, a lot of fun, but it's also, it's a, it's a very different way to interface with, with kids. Um, and then a lot of the, the support and work that I'm doing right now is, is with, is with parents. Um, and just as, you know, counseling when we're meeting each other face to face is um, a consideration of all the, the diversity that's within our community um, and requires kind of an individualized approach. It, kind of doing that, the, the support work right now in this COVID environment means a lot of, um, I mean, that's true as well in the COVID environment. Everybody's experiencing this differently, I think, as Kate mentioned earlier. Um, but in new ways, right? I mean, having to do a lot of listening and having to really try to understand what this new experience is for, for each family um, with you know parents who are trying to teach and trying to work, parents who are um, struggling a lot with just the, the interface of um, well, that dynamic and, and, and having to try to keep their kids on task and getting their assignments done and a lot of the, the time that they're spending, even though there is a lot more time together, is characterized by management. Um, uh, and so trying to find the balance between, you know, management toward independence, micromanagement, and that looks really different, right? Younger kids just need ongoing support to, to be able to navigate technology. So our, our, our beginning school parents are taxed a lot harder um, than our fifth grade parents. So it's just a, uh, it's just a lot of learning and listening on the fly and um, trying to be responsive. I'd like to kind of play off what you said about balance and screen time and how kids are navigating that. And I wanna to speak to the middle school population um, social is just the number one thing for kids in middle school, belonging, being in their peer group. And one thing I've seen on the rise is some tension building up in chats between students. And I've learned about those from students and from parents who were concerned. And I think a couple things parents can do is spend some time online with their middle schooler, play some games online, find some natural opportunities to bring up how it's going online socially and ways to encourage their kids to be positive and ways to navigate and avoid some of those bullying situations that can arise naturally in that age group when there's so much time spent online connecting. I think that's really important. So I just would encourage middle school parents to be as involved as they possibly can with that online life. And to piggyback basically on what kind of we're all talking about, um, <clears throat> some of the responses from parents and students that I've heard um, do, I want to be careful, but they do kind of emulate or simulate um, a response to a traumatic event or like stages of grief and loss and those sorts of things. And um, I think all three of my colleagues have alluded to this already. Um, 
but I want to emphasize the the important piece that everyone will experience this differently, although there will be similarities. Um, and there's no right or wrong way to experience the COVID piece and right this isolation and being at home and these um, federal regulations and, and state regulations. <clears throat> um, and and as and as parents and students experience those, just know like not to sound cliche, but it's okay. Like it will be what it will be. And um, as parents and colleagues and people and right for for students and no matter the age, everyone's doing the best they can. And so staying in tune and attentive to your kid in the good times and the bad, right? Regardless of COVID, but especially in this time, is important. Um, and there is no there is no set course on how any one person should um, go through this experience. Like when you think of stages of grief and loss, those don't happen in order. Um, and they can happen at any time and go back and forth and up and down and sideways. And so this experience, while it's new for everybody, there is no one course. And um, I, I, I would, I would encourage people to, to like literally just take a breath and know that it's okay um, and do what you can to reassure your kids, you know, um, developmental age or based on age and development that clearly um, I need to know um, basis for the scope of information will, um, will matter. But reassure your kids that it's okay um, and that you will do the best you can as a parent to help support them in any way possible. One of the things I'm curious about, I mean, I have two middle school kids of my own, um, is something you were talking about, Kristen, um, especially the need to socialize. And I think that's for everybody. I think all children um, have that strong need. And, and this is really this massive experiment in isolating kids from their friends. But there's also this tension between that need and kind of the idea of being on, on digital devices all the time. I mean, kids are on kind of digital devices all day with their classes, and then they want to connect with their friends. The only way to do that is through digital devices. Any thoughts in terms of supporting parents to help kids stay connected to their friends, to keep, keep those relationships positive, to help them continue to feel the joy in friendship, or things that you've been seeing or, or families have been doing that you you think are particularly helpful for, for that kind of thing? Yeah. First, I'll address the piece. I'll address the family piece second. Um, first, for par parenting and knowing how important that connection is in middle school, that social bond, I would encourage parents to find interesting games that they can play socially online with their friends. There's Scribbola, which is kind of like a Pictionary game. There's all kinds of games they can play live with each other. And that gives the connection a little structure and some purpose um, rather than just, um, I don't know, gossiping or hanging out without a, a direction, which they need a little bit of free time connecting. But I think offering up games that they can play online with friends is really important. And there's even um, like painting classes and drawing classes they could do together online with Zoom. Um, I even know of a teacher colleague of ours, Mark Pritchard, who um, played a dart game live with his friends on Zoom. They had their Zoom cameras on and 
um, kept score and threw darts. So I think there are ways that parents for middle schoolers can be instrumental in guiding some of that connection to be structured online. The family piece, I think it also family time is really important. And I recommend um, like if a parent can at least like set aside maybe 10 or 20 minutes of just one to one time with their kid a day, that is really helpful. They can do something light and fun. It doesn't have to be heavy or, um, you know, about COVID, but just a little connecting time um, away from screen because we do need to interact and play off screen too. I think family game nights are a good idea. If you can go in your yard and I don't know, throw a ball with your kids, whatever families can do to get out and get fresh air safely, I think is also a good thing for parents to do with their kids right now. I think so too. And one thing that I've heard that some parents have done is, um, you know, like they all decide they're going to learn how to do something together. Maybe it's one of those art courses Kristen was talking about. Maybe it's, you know, making dinner together or doing something. We know that one of the things that helps us through times like this is to have set some kind of a schedule. So if your kids know that Thursday night is family game night or Wednesday night, we're all going to make dinner together or before we go to bed, we're going to watch an episode of something or other. Um, then I think they, they grow to count on that, and that kind of helps structure their day. Anything you can do to help structure their day is also a good thing, but not, not in a, you know, you're at school now, you know, um, we're not going to have any fun. Because I think that the teachers, too, want the kids to be as relaxed as they can be. Learning is very important, but we all know that they're learning lots of things outside of what they're learning in the classroom during this time. And a lot of it's about themselves and how their family works. And that's, that's important learning to do, and we should give them time just to kind of think about that, too. There, I, I know that um, my son is involved in an outdoor climbing organization, and they were putting on some training sessions about how to climb. I don't know how they do that in the indoors, but um, I do happen to have a climbing rope in my living room, so I know they're doing it. Um, and then also they have Jeopardy games that they're playing. So encouraging your kids to think about different groups that they're part of, and maybe they'll set that up, you know. And for instance, you all know that OES and Catlin did this wonderful um, sack lunch drive, and we, I think, donated 10,000 sandwiches to the Blanchet House, and they distributed them to other organizations. You know, things like that. that that's always a good idea. Um, so thinking about parents and kids interfacing, I think just one recommendation I have, and I think this holds true, you know, pre and, and during quarantine is that you, that, that parents really be open to doing some of the things that their kids like to do. Um, even if it is, doesn't feel particularly enjoyable to you, but that is just a critical strategy for connecting. You know, I think a lot of times parents want to say, uh, dictate, what's important and what kind of experiences are um, legitimate and worthwhile. And, um, and I think that that's, that's alienating to kids. I think, you know, we, we need to model the flexibility of trying things that don't, that aren't our first choice and trying things that are important to the people that we care about. So I think 
doing the things that your kids like to do is, is a really important thing. Um, but then the online stuff is, you know, there aren't a lot of opportunities for kids to connect when it's not online. I mean, they can write letters. And I know that my, my boys, I have two boys at Catlin, um, a, a junior and a freshman. Um, I know one of my boys has received a handwritten letter and um, that really meant a lot to him. I think he really enjoyed getting that. Um, so I do think that there are opportunities for, for offline kinds of ways to connect. And maybe we can um, encourage or also model some of those. But we also have to embrace what is online too for kids and that there are um, a lot of constructive ways for kids to connect. Um, I think we can offer structure, but there are also a lot of ways that they're they're drawn to connecting as well, you know, like, I mean, play online video games uh, and they've got headsets just like this and they, they talk with their friends and connect in ways that feel really, really good to them. And so there's going to be a little bit more time spent doing some of those things. I think online art collaborations, playing music together, some kids are doing that. Some kids are using um, whiteboards where they can create um, art together. Um, I think the online platforms do offer a lot of really constructive ways for kids to get together as well. Um, and and that's, that's kind of what we've got right now. I kind of want to play off what Stephen is saying there about um, life at home with your kids and the parent role. And I think it's important for parents to just be realistic too in their approach and understanding that kids are cooped up and we need to be patient. They're not going to sit quietly all day long while we're doing our office job online. And we just need to understand some of that and have patience. And I think I would like to remind parents that when you're um, trying to coach or get things from your kids that are cooperative, it's really good to say what you want in a positive way. Like, hey, I'd appreciate it if you, like, clean up after you do that, rather than saying, oh, don't make a mess and starting to yell. So remembering to phrase things in the positive, what you're looking for, and then really just spontaneously praising your kid when you notice they're doing something that um, you like to see from them. And, it, you know, that build on it, and they'll remember that, and hopefully there'll be more positive, calm times at home. Um, and I want to add, too, um, that if you think about bedtime, um, I'm, you know, my experience at Catlin in the upper school, and then, you know, my previous work experience, bedtime is often the most stressful or anxiety evoking time for many people. Um, and, and not trying to diagnose anything, but what happens is, even as adults, as, as people are listening to this, what do you do when you're trying to fall asleep? Your mind is typically thinking about stuff and your mind is going and going and going. And so you think about how hard it is for us as adults to have some restful nights. Um, and so think about, you know, your kids and the, the students, um, your, your child or your children, um, and what things they might be thinking about and the number of things they're thinking about as they're trying to fall asleep. Um, and earlier I said, that I felt it was important to, to reassure them that everything will be okay. And I, I almost kind of want to step back from that a little bit because I can't promise that and, and parents can't promise that. Um, but I think I want to clarify that and say to be as honest 
and truthful and as open as, as, as possible um, with your kids. That I, I think is very important. And for the bedtime, um, you know, clearly depending on the age of, of your child or children, the bedtime routine is very important. Um, bedtime stories are very good. Um, bedtime music, soft music, different relaxation apps are okay. If you have a pet, um, you know, sitting with a pet might, might be good for bedtime. Writing in a journal, um, you know, even, um, this might be a little bit too revealing, but I remember my dad would often lay down with me before bed just to kind of settle me in when I was a kid. And that lasted a long time. Um, and, you know, I miss those times. And so I think about if you are a child, if you do that, great. I would say continue to do that. If you haven't done that, maybe ask them, hey, you, you know, you want me to lay down with you for a little bit as you try and fall asleep. Um, those, anything you can do to create some comfort and just reminding your kid that you are always there for them. Um, Casey? You know, I was thinking a little bit more about that, and I think that you can reassure your kids maybe that not everything is going to be okay, but there are lots and lots of heroes here that are working on solving these issues and problems, and lots of frontline healthcare workers doing everything they can to help people and care for people. So I think that, you know, there is that's positive, and yeah, you don't want to give them a lie kids see through everything so i loved what you said casey about being open and honest and being a good listener yeah. that's really really important it's the other piece I'm thinking, yeah the other yeah. piece i'm just thinking about is helping kids know that no one's to blame this is no one's fault and you can't blame it on a certain race or a certain people it it's um something we're all in this together and there's a lot of great people working on problem solving this so I want to pivot a little bit to thinking about the summer. I think there's been a lot of benefit of having these structures in place throughout the, the school year so far um, in the last couple of months. But I think there's probably a lot of anxiety and concern about what happens uh, in the middle of June. Suddenly, the structure that Catlin has provided is no longer there in terms of getting up and having you know three Zoom classes a day. And some of these, some of the support structures as like yourselves might be like, people feel like I, I don't have those anymore. Um, there's not going to be as many options for camps. I know people are trying to do online camps and things like that, but you know, the summer's a long, could be a long time. What thoughts do you guys have and what, what kind of things can be people be thinking about to keep motivated, keep positive throughout the summer when kids are often out running around with friends or out at camps or um, working jobs or things like that? Well, a lot depends on, you know, where we're going to be um, as a state with respect to to guidelines for, for social distancing. Mm -hmm. um, I, th I thought a lot about COVID and we, my wife and I with our own kids have approached um, some of these guidelines uh, around COVID by having some just open conversations with our kids. Um, you know, as always, we're trying not to not to lecture, but to ask more questions of them and what they know and understand about how the 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 virus is transmitted, um, about the safety precautions, um, so that when you know, I mean, like my my older son drives, um, 
and he's got a mask and um you know so like we he 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 came to the idea that he needs to be wearing a mask on his own just by way of open conversation and and not by mandate right so so i i would say that you know as those as those guidelines change for us and and restrictions are are lowered that you you know try to um get your kids thinking about you know the vulnerable right i mean i think this is these are the kinds of things that young people don't think about as much right like cuz they're they're more likely to to have lesser symptoms and or not manifest any symptoms at all but to be thinking about the vulnerable and what their role is as as a citizen of the community and how can we how can we do this together um so that's kind of that's one ap- approach that i've been thinking about just to have an open conversation I think that's a really important thing. And the other thing I think is that you really have to acknowledge how you're taking care of yourself um, also, because the, there's gonna be a lot of um, discussion of, are, can I now go out and see a friend and that kind of stuff, especially I think in the upper school, whereas Stephen said kids have access to cars. and. I think, you know, it's not a, it's not something that we can say, you know, we would always say follow the state guidelines and be as safe as you can, but you all will know how you could, how you might want to negotiate what they can and can't do with their, with the children. And I think what Stephen said is so important and Casey too, when he said, be honest with them. Well, and you too, Kristen, (laughs) but um, you know, we want to, give them the opportunity to create their own rules as much as possible. I, I thought throughout this thing that it's kind of difficult for kids because at the very beginning, they're so dependent upon you. And as we see them get into middle school and upper school, and sometimes the higher grades and lower school, they're well, always, they're just, it's like a, getting more and more independent. And so Independence may not mean the same thing in COVID. It might not mean that you can just go out and go wherever you want to go, but it can mean that you can help set up some of these, come up with some of these um, rules that you are, I don't know, rules sounds kind of too much, but you know, some of the guidelines you want to have for your family and letting them do that, I think is very important with you. Can I add to, um, I'm hoping this comes across as as supportive. and for all the parents that will hear this and, and, and the adults that will hear this, um, I hope you worry about your kids. Um, and that's not going to stop. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. Um, or, re, you know, regardless of COVID or what the situation is, I hope you worry about your kid. I'm 40, I'm turning 48. I hope my mom still worries about me a little bit. So whether it's moving on, from you know fifth grade to middle school or to high school or to college or just a nighttime routine like I was talking about earlier, no matter what it is, um, I, I would say know that uh, you're not alone and that you will worry about your kid and that's okay. Um, it doesn't mean you, you know you have something diagnosable or anything like that. And uh, again, I just want to say. I hope you worry about your kid um, because I would be more concerned if you weren't worried about your kid. 
Um, and I say all that with a smile on my face. So as a last question, I was just hoping that each of you could share out maybe something, a resource that uh, people could turn to uh, once, you know, one, one school is out. I'm, I'm not sure how available anybody at, uh, how, the, how the counseling office works over the summertime. But what are, uh, what are some, some steps people can, can be doing? You, you've offered a lot of great thoughts and, and suggestions about supporting kids. And like Kate, you were talking about parents taking care of themselves. I think that's, that's super important. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe as a last, last thing, what's a few, few pointers um, that you might suggest for people to, you know, to be able to handle uh, several months uh, without, without Calvin's support. I, well, I would like to just put in just a one last reminder that Catlin is offering some summer camps Mm -hmm. and I would suggest parents check those out for structure. And then there are many mental health agencies around and um, people available to give parenting tips or help if a family gets to a point in the summer where it's um, taxing on the family. I will be checking my email once a week over the summer. And if a family wants to reach out and ask me for specific resources or referrals, I will be happy to do that. But again, I won't be online every day checking my email. So in an emergency, if there were one, a family should get a hold of um, or call 911. I I kind of would say the same thing for the um, families. I think you know, beginning to explore options now. And part of taking care of yourself as a um, parent is connecting with other parents, you know, and doing this kind of thing with four or five of the parents of other students that your um, son or daughter plays or hangs out with. Um, And I think that that might give you some other resources, too, that both the things that you all think up together that might be good to do. I, I second the thing about um, the summer school options, and I will say, I think they're going to be fun and experiential in as much as they can be. You know, like maybe a cooking class, or um, I seem to be on that today, but um, you know, different kinds of things that fa- that students can do. So that would be not like doing Zoom history. No offense, history teachers. Um, and so I would really say that. And I just want to put one last thing in. For many years at Catlin, I was the college counselor. And I remember one student who wrote her grandmother a letter every week. And when she went to write her um, college you know, essay, that's what she talked about, how that you know, got her interested in writing. And I'm like Stephen. I think, you know, when your kids get something handwritten, they didn't even, you know, I remember having to teach them how to address an envelope. But um, if you, you know, if you have friends or grandparents or aunts and uncles that your children feel even a bit close to, having them check in with them um, in whatever way they feel most, you know, comfortable, but writing a letter is a nice one, um, may help them you know, feel better as we come out of this. And I agree with Casey, we can't say how we're going to come out of it, but we will come out of it and things will be different. And so we want to, you know, build up things that are going on now that might help them in the future. And I think that's one of them. It's been interesting to to have this conversation 
um, and to listen to certain tips, strategies, recommendations. I think it goes back to what Casey said at the very beginning of, of how we started, which is not, nothing is one size fits all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even as we've talked about all these different ways to connect potentially online, um, you know, the flip side of that coin is, you know, every kid and their relationship to techno digital technology is different. Um, their level of impulse control, the way that social exchanges impact them is, is felt differently. Um, and so while on the one hand, you might want to be loosening some of your, your, you know, the amount of time that you allow for kids to have um, engaging with digital technology. Um, I don't think that that should be carte blanche. I would I recommend um, some contracting around that um, for how that's going to look. Um, Casey talked about sleep and, and, you know, nighttime routines. You know, we, we have, we still have our kids turn in their devices at a certain time that's that's age appropriate so that they can have time to wind down and get to bed at, at, at a reasonable time um, so I think though I think that's really important um, and I just think that while everybody is starting to immerse themselves into to digital technology I think it's it's it is critical that you stay attuned to how your kids are doing during this time. So finding those times to be together that you can um, informally assess their, their mental health um, and just give them some in-person connection um, is really, really important. Oh, and just one practical thing. Uh, think about um, these glasses that kids can use and people can use to um, kind of filter out blue light if they're looking at screens quite a bit if if uh, in terms of you know that that's important for just their their eyesight and also their um, production of melatonin at night um, if if that resource is a financial burden reach out to us maybe we can help out with that but but that's something that I think we should all be thinking about just from just basic physical health as we engage with digital technology and I'd say, um, you know, I, I agree. The conversation has been great. I, I'd say think of every, you know, just think of everything you can. Um, the different apps, like I, I know I mentioned apps. We've all mentioned kind of different tips and tidbits and resources. Um, um, and I, you know, because we're the counseling department, I would, I would leave, or I, for me, I would end on this piece. Uh, not that everything has to be about mental health, but definitely if you're thinking or feeling or sensing that something is more off than it kind of should be, then I do think getting in touch with a pediatrician or a counselor or an outside professional, um, because all of our counseling schedules during summer are totally different. Um, I, I, I am rarely on my email um, and and I just know everybody's got a different schedule. So I just want to make sure that if in doubt, give a call to a pediatrician or a counselor or an, an external professional. Um, it, it's, it's never um, harmful to get a, a second opinion and just kind of check in where you feel you're at with your son or daughter or even yourself. Yeah, we're always available if there's an emergency or a crisis, and you could start by getting in touch with an administrator who knows how to contact us over the summer more expediently. Um, 
but yeah, but none of us are working over the summer. And, and so we're not, as, as everyone has said, not in close contact with our email. Good point. I want to say it's a pleasure being here to serve our community and we care about each and every one of our students and um, wish everyone the best as they navigate this. And I will reiterate to what Stephen said, you know, we're not always going to be available all summer. So, you know, watch your kids, reach out for help and um, take care and be well. Thanks, thanks everybody. everybody. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining for this conversation. I think uh, you've provided a lot of, just a lot of support in, in what you've shared already. And the, all the work that you've been doing, I think is so vital. And um, I think this will be, I think a lot of what you've said will be helpful to, to families across the entire community. So thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Elevate. If you have questions, ideas, or want to share your story, please send us an email. Elevate at catlin.edu. So